Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 as we get back to our series. I appreciate those that have shared in our service this morning. As Herb said, it has been a beautiful time of the year. We've seen some beauty in the colors of the trees and things. That's the good news. The bad news, <laughs> I looked at my weather app and supposedly a week from Wednesday we're supposed to get up to an inch of snow in 10 days, and a few days after that, freezing rain. It's coming, folks, and so, Herb, when you get up here the next time in the middle of freezing rain, I still want you to say, it's beautiful. All right, all right. You ever heard someone say or use the words, well, that was divine providence? I think we've all heard that from time to time, and and usually when a person says that was divine providence, they mean God had prearranged the events or the circumstances of something that just happened, that God's hand was in it. He had set it up. And that's really a pretty good way of thinking about it. That word providence comes from a Latin word, uh, the P-R-O, the pro meaning before, and the video meaning to see. So literally the word means to see before. And certainly God is the one that has that ability. So when we speak of God's providence, we're referring to his seeing before. His seeing all things before they happen. His sovereign arrangement of all things. And we've all experienced it at some point, haven't we? Where we thought, well, God was in that. Uh, that happened I mean, God just had that set up just right. I spoke with Bill Hill last week, and you know some years ago when Bill was kicked in the head by the horse, taken to the hospital at Lawrenceville to the emergency room, where in the emergency room, you never know what kind of doctor you're going to get, right? Just whoever's assigned. It just so happened that Gary Carr was there that day. And after taking a look at Bill, he realizing that they weren't equipped at Lawrence County to necessarily deal with the type of injuries Bill had. They called for a helicopter to life flight him up to Carl Clinic, Carl Foundation Hospital in Champaign-Urbana. So it's going to take a while for the helicopter to get here from Champaign. But it just so happened that the helicopter was at Effingham, had a much shorter trip. And so they came, it got Bill, and they took him up there, where again he goes into emergency not knowing what kind of doctor is scheduled to be on duty that day, but it just so happened that one of the leading facial reconstructionists in the nation was on duty that day and was exactly the person that Bill needed to see. Praise God. It just so happened, or divine providence? Did God see before what Bill would need and have it all set up? That's exactly what Bill believes, and I have no reason to doubt that. God can see and does see all things before. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56 today is our text, and I think it gives us a wonderful portrait of this aspect of God's character and God's grace. It's about God's sovereign power in the healing of a woman's hemorrhage, and then the raising of a young girl from death. And what a contrast these two healings present to us. 
Because on the one hand, it focuses on a woman that had been suffering from a disastrous hemorrhage for 12 years. The hemorrhage had rendered her ceremonially unclean, according to the law, based on Leviticus chapter 15, which meant she was a transmitter of uncleanness to anyone that she touched. Anyone that bumped up against her would be ceremonially unclean. Not only that, any other thing that she touched, inanimate objects like a cup or a plate or just whatever, a chair, would be unclean as well. She was forbidden to have sexual relations during the time that she would have that type of hemorrhage of blood. And she'd had it for 12 years, so if she were married, you think possibly now she was divorced from her husband? Ostracized from society? Barred from worship at the temple? Her situation had driven her to pursue medical help. And as Mark's parallel account says, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors in Mark 5, verse 26. The Jewish Talmud lists no less than 11 cures for this specific disease, this hemorrhage of blood. Some were potions. Others were just superstitions. For example, take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same, let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine and give her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet, let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come behind and frighten her and say, Arise from thy flux. Those were some of the things that were supposed to cure her. Like you were going to scare it out of her. I remember when I was in eighth grade, Mrs. Heath was giving us a spelling test. I was at Sumner back before consolidation in those days. Miss Heath would walk down the rows of our desks as she would give us the words to write down of our spelling test. She would have a ruler in her book that would mark the page that she would wanted to go to. And Ed Schultz was sitting, I sat in the very back corner of the first row. Ed was in about the third or fourth row over here in the very front seat. And she had come down and was coming up behind Ed. Ed had the hiccups and couldn't get rid of him. And she was giving us the words, and everybody was real quiet. She came up behind Ed, pulled that ruler out of her book, and went, <laughs> What's the matter? Ed looked up at her, scared to death. And then she said, Still got the hiccups? And he didn't. Uh, that was the kind of thing, you know. I wish I hadn't hit that so hard. Man. Okay. But, but the woman had undoubtedly tried some of these remedies, but to no avail. And Mark says she had spent all she had, and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And so this poor woman was broke. She was cut off from her home, cut off from society, cut off from religion, cut off from, from everything in declining health. She couldn't have been or felt any lower than she was. Now, in Mark contrast was the prominent family of Jairus a ruler of the synagogue. And as such, in his duties, he would select those that would preach or teach or read the scriptures and lead in prayer at the synagogue, a man of substantial prestige, a man that people would know. 
But he's in equally desperate need because his 12-year-old daughter was lying there dying at home. She was his only daughter, and now that sweet life was about to be snuffed out. Now, we that are parents know that we would do anything in the world to save our children, right? And if it's a matter of life and death, we would probably, like Jairus did, say, Lord, take me, take me. And so here we have two desperate representations of life, one well-off and the other poor, one accepted, the other excluded, one with family, the other probably alone. But, wo- but both were beyond human help. For 12 years, the girl and the woman had led such different lives, but now adversity had bound their souls together unawares, and they're both going to be recipients of God's life-giving power. And I think this is where we see God's providence and power interfacing with a fledgling imperfect, uninformed faith in these people. This is a story about a man and his daughter and a woman, but really it's a story about God. So notice verse 40. As Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to entreat him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes were pressing against him. So Jesus had left the shores of Capernaum to escape the crowds. And in the interval, as we've been seeing recently, he had calmed a raging storm. He had delivered a man from the grasp of a legion of demons. And now as he returns, this vast crowd swarms the shore to greet him and to see what other miracles he might do. One author would say that it was a dangerous crowd, a jostling and noisy crowd. But then it was silenced by an extraordinary spectacle. Falling before Jesus, prostrating himself before the Lord, is Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He's pleading with Jesus to come with him and heal his dying daughter. I doubt if Jairus had been known to have been friendly towards Jesus before because Jesus was an outsider. He had even been accused of heresy by other synagogues and his previous use of the synagogue in Capernaum had proven somewhat controversial. And so for Jairus a Jewish religious leader, to come and fall down before Jesus and beg for his help, that is indeed amazing. Now, don't suppose that Jairus had become a follower of Jesus or that he was a man of faith in Jesus. Fact is, he was just desperate. He had heard of Jesus' miracles, maybe had even seen one, possibly had met some people who had been healed by Jesus. He wasn't sure about Jesus, but this was his only chance, a last resort, a last hope. And that little bare flicker of faith brought him to fall before Jesus and beg for his help. I think he's like so many that have come to Christ. 
It wasn't his love for Christ that brought him, nor was it what he hoped to do for Christ that brought him, but rather it was what he hoped Christ could do for him that brought him. That desperation, that glimmer of hope. One commentator said, despair is commonly the prelude to grace. I like that. And Jairus' little flicker of faith is going to bring great rewards, especially as Jesus developed that faith in his providential ordering of events. And so, notice what happens next, beginning in verse 43. A woman that had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who's the one who touched me? And while they're all denying it, Peter said, Master, the multitudes are crowding and pressing upon you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, Luke's account here implies that Jesus immediately set out with Jairus with no hesitation. And I'm sure Jairus is happy about that. But as he went, the multitudes were pressing against him. And so it had to have been excruciating for Jairus as he and Jesus are slowed down like a modern ambulance in the middle of a traffic jam. The crowd meant no wrong. It's simply that they didn't want to miss anything. And then, to Jairus' dismay, everything came to a halt because there's another desperate person in there that day, an unknown woman with a hemorrhage who couldn't be healed by anyone, thinking to herself, if I can just touch just the fringe of his garment, I'll be healed. I think she had probably done her best to escape notice. And the religious people in the crowd would not have been happy that day had they known she was mingling with them and infecting everybody with her uncleanness. But she found it was easier to get close to Jesus in the press of the crowd. And she was undoubtedly humiliated and by her illness and wanted anonymity, but she took a risk because she's desperate. According to Mark's account, she, like so many in her day, believed that sometimes the garments or even the shadow of a godly person could bring healing. So as Jesus passed by, she was close enough that she either just reached out or lunged towards Jesus and momentarily closed her hand around the edge of his cloak or one of the four tassels that would have been suspended from it. And in a vivid moment, That will live in her memory throughout all of eternity. She knew that she was immediately healed. Jesus realized that that type of power had gone out of him. Immediately asked, who touched me? (laughs) And Simon Peter said, well, Lord, the crowd's pressing in on you and bumping against you. Why, Why, everybody's been touching you, Lord. He said, someone touched me because I'm aware that power has gone out of me. And how poor Jairus must have been greatly frustrated at this interruption and this delay. I mean, precious time is being wasted. His little girl is dying. Her life is slipping away. Come on, Jesus. 
My daughter is dying. You're worried about somebody in this rude crowd that touched you? Come on. But Jesus' providential plan had greater things in store, not only for the woman, but for Jairus and his family. And when the woman saw she had not escaped notice, her heart throbbing with joy at being healed and probably fear too, her eyes tearing up, Christ is calling her to step out. Who touched me? To stand before the crowd. Not only for her sake, but I think for Jairus' sake too, though she didn't know that. And what do you think the woman was thinking right now? If I step out and confess, will he take my healing away? What will the crowd do? And what will they think? What are they going to say to me? I think this woman's faith at its very core was an ignorant faith, an uninformed faith. She had sought more of a magical cure, like Jesus is so charged with healing that anyone that touches him is just going to get zapped with health. So her faith is uninformed and superstitious, presumptuous, imperfect, but it's real. And Christ honored that flicker of faith. And by the way, he still does the same thing today. Because beginning faith is often uninformed and mixed with errors and misconceptions about who God is and who Jesus is and what do the scriptures really say and what's this idea about the Trinity and what's the atonement and all kinds of things. But those foggy understandings are often the true beginnings of an authentic, informed trust in God. And we can take, take courage in the fact that we don't have to have everything figured out doctrinally in order to possess a faith that pleases God. Now certainly we need to believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God and that He died for our sins. We, and we rest everything on that, His death, burial, and resurrection. But true faith is not the sole property of the spiritually elite or those with the most Christian education. This woman's faith was not only ignorant, but it was also selfish. She's concerned about herself, right? She wanted health. Probably really didn't care who the healer was as long as she could be healed, which that's common with beginning faith. We come to him because of some problem. We reach out in stumbling faith amidst the press of the crowd. But Jesus always recognizes a genuine yearning and trust and will touch that person with his love. And in a sea of a million hands, he will always see the hands that are stretching and reaching to him. And that person will not go unnoticed, as this lady did not go unnoticed. So let me ask you, are you sensing within you the stirrings of faith? And if so, I encourage you to move towards Jesus. Reach your hands out towards Jesus. You will not go unnoticed by him. The other thing we see here is that Christ instructs real faith, even when it's imperfect. Because after Jesus had coaxed her, this trembling woman comes forward, she makes her confession, and Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He was gentle towards her. 
This is the only woman in the scriptures that Jesus ever called daughter that we're aware of. And his explanation that her faith had healed her informed her that it was not her superstition, it was not some kind of magic. Her faith was real and that had put her in touch with God. And moreover, in establishing a personal relationship with her, he demonstrated that we can't be saved by the power of Christ unless we come into a relationship with him as well. How great our Lord is. By calling her forth, he announced her healing to the whole world. She was no longer unclean. She could go home. She could go to other people's homes. She could go to the synagogue. She could even go to the temple. She could worship. And don't miss this. This desperate woman represents all of us. Right? She represents us. We're all ill. We've all spent our money on things that don't work. But when Christ comes to us, we need to touch him by faith and not fear that he won't respond or not fear that we're too ignorant or that we're too sinful, not fear that we're too selfish. The only thing we should fear is that we'll let him pass by without responding. And we dare not do that. So notice verses 49 and following. While he was still speaking... Someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she'll be made well. And when he had come to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping. She's not died but is asleep. They began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she rose immediately. He gave orders for something to be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So all the while that Jesus is dealing with this woman, what do you think Jairus is thinking? Well, you can pretty much know what he's thinking, right? Come on, Jesus, let's get going. Wouldn't you be thinking that? Of course. But is it possible that seeing Jesus heal the woman would have raised the hope of Jairus that Jesus could heal his daughter? I think so. And then just as his hope is being elevated, comes the shocking news that his daughter has died. Don't bother that teacher anymore. So his hope and faith has been elevated. Then it's been snuffed out and quenched. But with equal quickness, it is inflamed and elevated again because when Jesus heard the news, he said, don't be afraid. Only believe, and she'll be made well. Don't miss the divine providence here. Jairus came to Jesus with an uninformed, wishful, almost belief that Jesus could heal his daughter. That belief had been elevated by Jesus healing the woman. But now Christ 
challenged Jairus not merely to believe in him for healing, but for his daughter's resurrection from the dead. Did he believe? Evidently. Otherwise, he and Jesus and the three disciples would never have returned to his home and entered the room of his daughter where she lay dead, her pupil still and dilated, her color gone. Luke tells us here Jesus ordered the professional mourners that were already there to stop weeping. She's not died. She's asleep. And they began laughing at him knowing that she had died. But Jesus, Jesus was interpreting death from his viewpoint. True death, eternal death, is separation of the soul from God, not separation of the soul from the body. Her dead body was asleep, but Jesus would bring that back to life. So in verse 54, Jesus took that little girl's hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She rose immediately. Jesus gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Can you imagine what that must have been like for the little girl? Can you see her eyes blink and focus and try to, try to come back and be able to really see? And the first thing she sees is the face of Jesus. And then the wet faces of Jairus and his wife, her parents. And then the astonished faces of three thunderstruck disciples. And you see, the whole story, folks, is a vast tale of divine providence. A desperate father, a dying girl, a desperate woman, a delayed Jesus. A believing woman, a dead girl, a living girl, a believing man. How the Lord choreographs things sometimes is just awesome. And this is the capstone to a trio of episodes that is meant to teach us of the comprehensive power of Jesus, the comprehensive power of God. Amidst those towering walls of water on a storm-tossed sea, he said, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves immediately obeyed him. And then confronted with a pathetically demonized man, those spirits pled with Jesus not to send them into the abyss, but he did. First through the pigs, then into the abyss, I believe. He's the God of nature. He's the God of the supernatural. But he's also the God of timing and space, of all providence. And in the healing of the woman and the raising of a child, we see him initiating and elevating human faith. From a small, bare flicker of faith into a flame, into belief. Jesus can do anything. Amen? Amen. He's sovereign. Nothing's too great for him. And he can save your soul, which is why he came in the first place. He can restore your life. He can bring you safely through whatever storm you are in. He can supply your most desperate need, but you must come to him in faith. Even if it's an uninformed faith, an ignorant faith, a weak faith, a fledgling faith, you come to him 
you turn to him, you reach out to him to touch him. And I guarantee it, you will not go unnoticed. So that's the message today. It's decision time. Do you believe the woman with the hemorrhage was a believer after Jesus touched, after she touched Jesus? I do. Do you think Jairus was a believer after Jesus raised his daughter from the dead? I do. Has Jesus touched you in a way that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the son of the living God? For most of you, you would say absolutely. But if you're here this morning and you've never reached out to touch Christ, if you've never allowed him into your life, if you have a glimmer of hope or just a flicker of faith, come towards him. Come towards him. It won't go unnoticed. And you will not find rejection. You can find salvation in him. And if you need that today, you come as we sing, you meet me down front. And we'll talk. And we'll get you as close to Jesus as you can come. Let's stand and sing.